Amen. Good morning, church. Good to be with you today. My name is Justin, one of the uh, elders and pastors here at Peninsula Grace. Uh, growing up, our house was a, a revolving door. There we go. That's the first slide. Uh, our house was a revolving door of guests, friends, stray cats, like anybody could come, uh, especially our teenage years, just people were always in our home. My mom and dad welcomed everybody. We're an Italian family, the Franchinos, so when you're here, you're family, right? Forget about it. And not just like you could come into the home, but you were welcomed with hugs, laughter, dinner was rarely just the five of us, right? There's always enough pasta to go around. And my mom, she, my mom loved all of our friends, but... But, but, she had the same expectations for our friends that she did for us. So all of our friends also had to take their shoes off when they came inside. Our friends also were not permitted to fart on the couch, right? My mom constantly, my enduring image of her in high school was her shirt over her nose, sitting on the couch with all the stinky teenagers. Um, and she was famous for her Carmen talks. Has anybody here ever received a Carmen talk? If you have, you know you have. Uh, she always has a smile on her face, but as you're walking away, you realize in hindsight, I was just put in my place. Huh. I, it, how, the house rules applied to everybody. So whether it was my best friend Jacob or one of, we, we always got, all of us that were there, we got the Carmen talk. When you're here, you're family, right? So anyone was welcome at our home and at our table, but you had to come to the Carmen's table, Carmen's way, right? So the question is, for us today, who, who is welcome at your table? Like, literally, into your home, but even uh, metaphorically, at the, the table of your heart. Like, who would you, do you accept as a person? Who do you welcome in, and who do you not welcome in? Uh, and what does God, in his word, have to say about our guest list? Um, is it just people that you like? Do you just welcome in people uh, who are your, your own family or, or your, your close friends? What about if somebody is dirty? What, what about someone who is rough around the edges? What about somebody who doesn't talk just like you do, who doesn't think just like you do, someone who believes differently than you do? What about someone who's wronged you? Would you welcome the Democrat to your table? Would you welcome the Republican to your table? What about somebody from the LGBTQ community? Are they welcome at your table? What about the fundamentalist, the dogmatic Pharisee? Are they welcome at your table? Think about the Middle Eastern conflicts today. Would you welcome both the Israeli and the Palestinian? What about the member of Hamas? And now there are house rules, right? There are clear wisdom principles for a, who would literally come inside. I'm not suggesting that you just regularly have terrorists over for dinner. That's not the point, right? But I'm talking about a heart posture of openness and love and acceptance. And, and as we're walking through the, the gospel of John, what we see this morning in, in John chapter 4 is Jesus sits at a well with a Samaritan woman. And, and we see Jesus setting out the welcome mat for everyone, but there are requirements. There's a way to come to the table. And we're going to see the, the, the working title for this morning's passage is Come All You Thirsty. There's an invitation, come. There's an extent of that invitation for all, but there is a requirement, and that is thirst. 
So if you have, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 4 this morning. I invite you to follow along in that copy. You can grab a, a hard copy out in the foyer in the bookshelf or follow along on your phone. I'll have the CSB version up on the screen. So John chapter 4, we're going to first look at that invitation to come. There's a drink that's offered. We pick it up in John uh, 4 verse 1. When Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself wasn't baptizing, his disciples were, he left Judea and went to Galilee. So if you are here with us last week, we saw uh, many people moving from John and his disciples to go over to Jesus and his disciples for baptism. John John's disciples noticed that. The Pharisees noticed that. There's some drama that's starting to develop. And so Jesus tries to, to kind of keep that uh, from, from really getting out of control. And so he uh, removes himself from the situation. Let's look at verse 4. He had to travel through Samaria. And we'll stop right there for a second. For us, that's a small detail. But for John's audience, they would make a, have a huge double take. He went through Samaria? Now, Jesus' route, if you look at a map, this was certainly geographically uh, the most obvious route to go from the south where he is in Judea up to the north where he was heading to Galilee. Um, but many Jews would take the long way around. They would actually cross the Jordan River twice to avoid Samaria. Or if you did go through Samaria, you did so holding your nose the entire time. Why? Well, there's a whole history here. Um, between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. So originally, Israel was one nation right, under God. And there is a civil war that breaks out in the Old Testament, and they're divided into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now there's um, the Judah in the south, and then the northern kingdom became known as Samaria after the capital city. There are still actually a, a small number of Samaritans that are alive today. They have this purse that we send shoeboxes to every single Christmas, right? <laughs> that, that last part's a lie. Um, <laughs> due to Israel's disobedience, Israel, Assyria uh, invades the, the northern kingdom and deports many of the Israelites. Then, then they, the Assyrians, the foreigners, settle into the land and they start to intermarry with the remaining Israelites. So now you have this weird mixture of Israelite and Assyrian uh, culture and blood and beliefs. And then after the exile, the southern kingdom starts to view the, the kingdom to the north as um, this, this sort of uh, the children of their political enemies, right? Their oppressors, Syria, and start to see them socially, culturally, uh, racially as half-breeds. They're, un, they're unclean, intermixed with, with Gentile blood. And so strict Jews wouldn't even set foot in Samaritan land. Wars break out. In fact, a couple hundred years before this, this time we're reading this morning, the high priest of the Jewish people, the Hasmoneans, burn the Samaritan temple to the ground. The fighting gets so bad that Rome has to step in. Like, you know it's bad when the Romans are going, guys, you guys are getting too violent, right? You're getting too carried away. These two people groups hated each other. When we think about the conflict in the Middle East today, there is nothing new under the sun. So this is why what Jesus is about to do is so shocking. In verse 5, it continues. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. So G this, the journey would have been about 70 miles traveling through the hot desert. He's about halfway through. 
this journey, and it's high noon. It's the hottest part of the day. So Jesus is tired, and he's thirsty. What a reminder that he is fully God, but he has come down to earth as fully man as well. He continues on, uh, verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, something noteworthy here. Women usually traveled in groups. There was protection in numbers socially. They were connected to one another. Um, but they would normally come either early in the day to the well, or they would wait till much later in the day. Because just like Phoenix in the summer, you didn't do things at the hottest point of the day. So, as we'll see, this very well may point to this uh, woman's public shame. The fact that she's there at high noon with the water, so she's coming when nobody else would be around. Continue on. Verse 7, give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone in to buy, into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So Jews saw Samaritans uh, as defiled, especially uh, Samaritan women. And to drink after, because she would be drinking out of a vessel that she had, had touched, had even drinking out of. So that would have actually made him defiled or unclean. You have to go through this whole process to become uh, ceremonially cleansed again. The rabbis shortly after this would make a law, and this law would sweetly say, all daughters of Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle. It's always fun to talk about these things on Family Sunday. So that if, you know, if, you, if you were menstruating, that period of time, you were, you were uh, defiled, ceremonially unclean. So what are they saying? Is basically they saw Samaritan women as permanently defiled. So that's fun. Um, th there's sexism going on here. There's racism going on here. We're just kind of filling out our bigotry bingo card, aren't we? No wonder she gives Jesus a double take. You're, you're talking to me? You are talking to me? You want a drink from me? You're going to be defiled. And I love what D.A. Carson says about this. She does not know that far from, far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. You see, when, when Jesus touched the leper, Jesus didn't get leprosy. The man was healed. And what a gospel truth for our hearts. Like when Jesus touches me, I don't make Jesus sinful. Jesus cleanses me. That, that the beauty of his incarnation is that God becoming man, it didn't taint God, it rescued man. What a, what a savior, what a gospel. Verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. See, the woman saw Jesus as a thirsty, weary traveler. But what he's about to reveal to her is that he is ultimately the never-tiring, water-giving, living water-giving God. Jesus is playing with the word living water. So living, at that it meant, also meant flowing. So she's hearing him say, I've got this, I know this spring where water flows, where it runs uh, freely. But, of course, Jesus means much more than that. So verse 11, uh, she responds, Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? So she first misunderstands him to say, and this, this well was at least 100 feet deep. So she's going, how are you getting a bucket down that deep to, to find where the running spring lies? 
But then secondly, verse 12, she says, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. So she goes, you're not greater than our, than our, father, Abraham, than our father Abraham and his son Jacob, right? Or his grandson Jacob. His name means Israel. Like, these are our forefathers. You're not claiming to be better than our forefathers. But of course, Jesus is the word made flesh, God himself that those forefathers the whole time have been put, uh, pointing forward. Jesus is the true and better Israel, indeed. He goes on, verse 13, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. If you drink from Jacob's well, you're going to have to come back to Jacob's well and come back and come back and come back. But verse 14, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him, he will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So if, if you've been camping, not glamping, like real camping, okay, you know what it's like to have a limited water supply, and you don't want to waste it. It's getting low, and I still got to brush my teeth and have coffee in the morning, right? Like you know you're, you're dealing with a certain amount of water. But Jesus says, what I'm offering you is a connection directly to the source, and you'll never get thirsty again. This is standing under that Niagara Falls, a permanent connection to living water. And this morning, maybe this is the invitation you need to hear. Maybe the Lord has you here this morning to hear the invitation, which is to come, to come. There is a place, listen, there is a place at Jesus' table for you. No matter your past, no matter your present, no, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, the invitation is come as you are. But we're saying, well, wait a second, how can a sinner come to the holy table of a holy God? This is where Jesus takes it next. The requirement is thirst. Come, all you thirsty. Look at verse 15. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. So Samaritan woman, she wants in on any blessing that's going to spare her these shame-riddled trips to the well over and over again. She recognizes her physical thirst. She recognizes her social dilemma. But Jesus wants to speak even deeper to the, the spiritual thirst that she has. And so he's going to gently probe in. Look at verse 16. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, uh-oh, and the man you have now is not your husband. Snap! What you have said is true. So let's talk for a second here. Ra the rabbis at the time would have disapproved of, of more than three marriages. At some point they would have said there's a common denominator going on here. And nobody would have approved of living together outside of marriage. Jesus knows this woman's past. And again, he's revealing himself as God here, one who knows all, omniscient. Just like in chapter 2, we saw he knows what is in the heart of every man and woman. But this wasn't to show off. He's not just showing off that he knows all these things. He's showing the woman her need of him. But Jesus is not careless with our hearts. He knows the, the shame this woman has experienced. And we're not told. 
how much of this was done to her by these husbands, what part hers was to play, right? The point is she's bearing the shame of the past and the present. And Jesus always knows how to cut straight through to the heart, to our deepest uh, sin, to our deepest hopelessness, to our deepest guilt and shame, to our deepest despair, to our deepest need. And, And what a model of truth in love here. He's clear, but he's gentle. He says, you have spoken truly. He commends her for her honesty, but he wants to probe even deeper. He doesn't shy from the truth and the shame of her sin, but he engages her and engages her across all social taboos. And when Jesus speaks into the sin and shame, he's with her. He's not against her. And she, in response, verse 19, says, sir, the woman replies, I see that you are a prophet. You clearly know things, right? You've got some intel here, you little prophet, you. And then she quickly changes the subject. Verse 20, uh, she says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in uh, Jerusalem. So God had commanded uh, back in uh, in Deuteronomy to build a place for him to be worshipped at, a physical location. Now, both the the Jews and the Samaritans were on board with that. The dispute came as to where, the location of that temple and worship. So the Jews believed that it was, uh, and this is where the the touch point of of heaven and earth, God and man. Uh, The Jews believed that this was going to be in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom's capital, and specifically at the temple that Solomon built down there in in the southern end of Israel. And as we read through the Old Testament, this is clearly laid out. This is God's revealed will for his people to worship him there. But the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They rejected the rest of it as coming from God. And so that would have been the part of the Bible that would have specified that it was going to be at Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. They believed it was up at Mount Gerizim, which is up north, conveniently located where where they are, right? Now, this is where Abraham first uh, uh, sacrificed to God in Genesis 12 when he was making the promises to Abraham. This would have been in the five books that that they believe are from God. Now, in uh, 400 years before this moment, the Samaritans erected a temple here on Mount Gerizim. About 200 years later, the Jews themselves destroyed that temple, but the Samaritans are still worshiping on that very mountain where Jesus and this woman are, are talking so I like to imagine them having these worship wars. You know, you got the people down south in Jerusalem, the people up north in Gerizim, and they're singing back and forth, I will enter these gates with thanksgiving in my heart, right? And they're going back and forth at one another, really the heart of worship being encapsulated, right? Uh, verse 21, it goes on to say, Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. We, Jesus was born a a, a Jew, right? So he says salvation is from the Jews. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know God created every human being for relationship with him. And we rejected that invitation, that's sin, it's rebellion. But God had a rescue plan all along. Now, that plan came, as he says here, from the Jews. When he chose Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he goes on to say, it's going to be through your nation that all peoples, all nations on earth will be blessed. So that means the rescuer, the coming Messiah, would come through Abraham's people, Israel. So salvation is from the Jews. It's not only 
for the Jews. That's the difference. He says salvation comes from the Jews. Now, he says the Jews worshipped what they knew, while Samaritans what they did not know. He says the Jewish people are right. God's intent was to build that temple in Jerusalem. But very soon here, he says both places are going to be rendered obsolete. And, and therefore, there's little gain in arguing about that now. Look at what Jesus continues to say, verse 23. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He says, yeah, there's a period of time when, when the Lord had appointed this specific place in this temple in Jerusalem where he would be worshipped. But in the age to come, and he says here, it's now here. Jesus has come and inaugurated this new age. When worship wouldn't just be at a geographic location, but he says it'll be done in spirit and in truth. This word spirit, it means not just a ritual, not just an outward going through the motions, not just a physical location, but an inward, an inward love relationship. He said God is spirit, and so our spirit is going to engage with the very spirit of God. This is a worship in relation, not just location, but it's also in truth. That we must come to God's table, God's way, in reality. See, we, to have relationship with him, we must worship God as he is, who he is, and we must come to God, God's way. But we know no sinner has approached God the way he deserves to be approached. That's why we needed a rescuer to restore us to real relationship with our God in spirit and in truth. And this is where the rescuer comes in. Last part of his conversation with her. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Samaritan acknowledges. She says, man, we need that rescuer. He's going to tell us how it all is. And Jesus says, he will, and I am. And the disciples interrupt him, so we don't get the actual conclusion of the story. Come on, disciples. But, but who did this Messiah, who did this rescuing king ultimately come for? It's interesting. This story comes right after the story of Nicodemus. And I, and I, I can't help but wonder if John is comparing, contrasting these two people and the Messiah coming for them. Here at first you have Nicodemus, who was a Jew, right? He's learned, very, very taught. He's powerful. He's respected by his peers and his people. He's orthodox in his views. He is a purebred Jew, and he is a male, which in a patriarchal world meant a symbol of power and respect. Whereas this other that he talks to in John 4 is a Samaritan, uneducated, powerless, despised by the people around her, heretical in her views, according to the Jews, a half-bred socially, racially, and a female in a man's world. And what I see here, his point, is they both need Jesus just as bad. That he has leveled the playing field. That the entire world is in need, equal need, of a savior. And Jesus' invitation to the Samaritan woman is to come. Is to come. But how do we receive Jesus' living water? The requirement is thirst. It's thirst. 
The only requirement for a place at Jesus' table is to recognize our thirst and to ask for a drink. That's what it means to believe, to receive. Verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift that I was offering and you knew your need for that gift, you'd be asking me for the water, not vice versa. But we often struggle to trust God's water will actually satisfy our thirst. And so what do we do? We slurp from mud puddles. That we, we look to quench our thirst in other locations. Our career success, I think that achievement will, will satisfy our thirst. More fun in our lives, m- more money in our lives, better relationship in our lives. And those things might satisfy us for a minute, but they will all eventually run dry and leave us where we were in the first place, thirsty. Until, guys, until we recognize the depth of our thirst, the depth of our sin, the depth of our need for a Savior, we will not come to his table for living water. I love the the hymn, Rock of Ages. It says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, quench me, Savior, or I die. Now, we cannot receive his living water if we have a mouth full of mud puddles. We we cannot receive his grace in our hands. We cannot cling to the cross alone if they're filled with other things that we're latching onto in in a misplaced trust. The invitation here is to come, but only the thirsty will come. So finally, how wide is this invitation been given? The last thing we see is the harvest is ripened and it is for all. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? So they're perplexed, right? And to understand the disciples' uh, perplexion, we got, again, we have to understand the taboo, the prejudice that was ex- being experienced in that day. Some, not all, but many ha- had this Jewish line of thought that said, for a rabbi, and remember, Jesus is their rabbi. He's their teacher. So this is how they view him. And for a rabbi to even talk with a woman, even their own wife, Walk that one out, man. Uh, it was at best a waste of time and at worst a diversion from studying the Torah, the Bible. Therefore, they saw talking to a woman as a great evil that would lead to hell. You talk about hypocrisy. Shut up, woman. I'm reading about loving my neighbor, right? Like, I mean, you can choke on it, right? But Jesus, he doesn't play hostage to this sexism. And this was a teaching moment for his apprentices, his disciples. See, Jesus already showed this woman that she was not taboo for him. But now he needs to show the disciples that he's going to send out in the world to see people the way he sees people. And like Jesus, man, we don't have to be, listen, we don't have to be scared about being infected by unbelievers. We come bringing the healing. That our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other humans. It's against evil. It's against sin and death. And so we come to people to help free them from sin, just like I needed freed from sin, just like I needed healed from sin and death. In verse 35, he says, it's harvest time. Uh, Look down at 35. We don't have time to read this whole section here, but he says in verse 35 to his disciples, don't you say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? But listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they 
are ready for harvest. He says it's harvest time right now. And who's the harvest he's immediately referring to? The Samaritan people. The very people that they despised. You jump back up to verse 28. It says the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Then jump down to verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they, stay, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there with these Samaritan people for two days. Many more believed of what he, because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we heard for ourselves and know that this really is, and here's the punchline, the Savior of the world. John is showing a huge irony here, that the Samaritan people are embracing Jesus while by and large the Jewish people are rejecting him. And what, what, what do we see in the monologue? He came unto his own, but his own what? Did not receive him. We're seeing that walked out here. Now, notice it says he's the savior of the world. Is he the savior of the Jews? That's not what Jesus said. He's the savior from the Jews. He's the savior of the world. And, 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 and this is what the Samaritans are getting, but Jesus' people are still mostly on the struggle bus. Jesus' disciples would follow this pattern as he sends. They got the lesson here. Because in Acts 1.8, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you, and you'll be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, and all Judea, and hello, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We, as Jesus' disciples, have been sent to everyone. We've been sent to the whole world. God's heart is for a worldwide harvest of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation on the face of the earth. And there's a day coming. Day coming when his glory, his glory will no longer just be in a temple in Jerusalem. Habakkuk says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. You know how much ocean there is right now? That's the extent to which the entire planet will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. People who know him and worship him as he is. And where will we be? Revelation 21 says, I didn't see a temple. John has a vision of the new heavens and new earth. He says, I didn't see a physical building. Why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. There's a day coming when it's going to be the, the personal presence of God the Father and the Lamb, God the Son, who are walking here on earth with us. And for all who recognize their thirst, will be able to come to his table forever. Hallelujah. So what for us today? A couple of questions as we land the plane. First of all, how do I believe that I come to the table? Well, first of all, we've got to recognize our own thirst um, last month, the Jackson Farms had this kids event. It was the most happening thing in the Kenai Peninsula that Saturday. And now that I have a kid, I'm aware of these events. Okay, So go here, and they have this chocolate fountain. And I come up to the chocolate fountain, and they've got little sticks with strawberries and with Rice Krispies and with marshmallows. And you stick your stick under the flowing chocolate and just dumps, cascades chocolate on whatever you put. I just stick my face under there, right? And so I asked the little 15-year-old how much for the chocolate strawberry, and they said it's free. 
that it's free? And the kid said, yeah. Now imagine if I had said, I want to pay for it. And the 15-year-old goes, sir, I don't understand. We're giving it to you for free. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think you heard me, punk kid. I want to pray for it. Pay, pray for it, yeah. I want to pay for it. Why would I pay for free chocolate, right? That's insane. But we do this all the time with our God. In Jeremiah 2, he says to his people, my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, where he says in Isaiah, I give it without price. And they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Why in the world would you try to get your water from one little jar that can't even, it's cracked, it can't even hold the water. Why wouldn't you step under this waterfall? But don't we do the same thing? Like, that's insane. Why would we try to pay for something that's given to us freely? Our sinful nature so desperately wants to be seen as right and good. And so God's free grace, it offends our flesh. We want to provide for ourselves. And I think even deeper in that is saying, I don't trust my father and what he offers me. So let me ask you this morning, what cracked cisterns have you been digging for yourself? Whether it's success, whether it's chasing a substance, and whether it's relationships, whether it's vacations, like these good things become idols and we try to, we try to find living water. And I lovingly want to ask you, are those cisterns actually satisfying your thirst? Like, let's be real. Are those cisterns offering lasting satisfaction? They will run dry. They will run dry. And so the second invitation is drink Jesus' living water. Come to the well that never runs dry. But here's the good news. Look at me. Jesus sees you the way that he saw that Samaritan woman. Like he, he sees your sin. It's not lost on him. In fact, he knows my sin far better than I ever could. He knows the depth of my sin that I don't understand. But he sees us with the eyes of love. He longs to give us his living water, to cleanse you, to wash you, to make you new and whole. Jesus likes you. Jesus wants you to eat at his table. He, he wants you with him to call his father, Abba, but we have to come his way, the way that he provided. Are you drinking from his living water alone? But then secondly, who else do I believe is welcome at the table? You see, how we see ourselves before God has a direct correlation with how we're going to see other people before God as well. And here's the, the beautiful news of the gospel. We are called to welcome everyone at his table. Because of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is not clean up first, then come to Christ. And we might know that in our heads, but how often do we live that out backward in our own lives and in the way we see other people? It's not clean up your act and then God will accept you. That's reverse of the gospel. The gospel is come to Christ to be cleaned. This was, we said, my mom was giving her Carmen talks, not to strangers. They were to kids that she already accepted as if they were her own, that knew that she loved them. So we have to ask ourselves, who did Jesus come to save? The Jew or the Samaritan? Yes, 
Who did he come to save, the Democrats or the Republicans? Yes. God desired, he is the savior of the world. So I don't know who in your life, at your table, who is taboo for you? Is there somebody that Jesus welcomes at his table, but you won't welcome to yours? Remember, our battle, guys, is not against flesh and blood. It's sin. It's Satan. It's death. It's, and so we, what each person needs is to be forgiven from their sin, cleansed from their sin, freed from that, their sin. And that's the invitation to everyone. Now, of course... Of course, welcoming someone to the table, like engaging in a relationship, involves wisdom. If there's a, a woman who's being abused by her husband, love might say, I need to get out and get safe. There might need to be a restraining order put out. Oh, that's, we're, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is, am I willing to forgive and reconcile with every single person? Now, now we know in our own hearts, that's impossible on our own. That's why we don't draw from cracked cisterns. That's why only the living water of Jesus in and through us can love people, see people the way that our God does. Who is welcome at the table? Everyone's welcome, but we, we can only be welcomed God's way. Listen, and I think in some ways this is maybe what gets us wrapped around the axle. Accepting someone is not the same as affirming their specific sins. And I think sometimes we think that if I accept that person, if I welcome, if I give them a hug and say, I love you, that we're at the same time saying every single thing that you're doing, every lifestyle choice, I'm totally cool with and God is totally cool with. That's not one and the same. Jesus dined with sinners, but he also came to rescue them from their sin. He came to heal them from their sin, to set them free, to bring healing. See, the gospel is offensive. The gospel says we are thirsty sinners in need of a savior, and we can only come to the table God's way. All are welcome, but we can only sit down and be family if we're clean. And how do we get cleansed? Through the living waters of Jesus. And so we got to say that to other people. And that's not being mean. That's inviting them into relationship with our God in reality. That's how to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's loving to say to somebody, you're heading for a cliff. And so are you willing to say the hard things to the loved ones in your life, to give Carmen talks where they need to be given? And we, we come to them recognizing that well, we are fellow thirsters that both need to come to the waterfall for life. The reality is, man, all of us, all of us need and are offered living water to be cleansed from our shame. To worship our God in spirit and in truth. And so as we're going to sing later on, that we hear the invitation as Jesus to the Samaritan woman. Come all you thirsty. Come to the well that never runs dry. Drink of the water. Come and thirst no more. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you loved us enough. To, to, you meet us right where we're at. You, you engage with sinners but you loved us enough to provide rescue so that we could once again have relationship with you according to reality. Not a false God of our own design, not covering and hiding the deepest sins and shame in, in the recesses of the corners of our heart, but Lord, we can come to you as we are and experience 
full forgiveness through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, full freedom through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, that we can come as we are because you have cleansed us through him, made us whole, and through Jesus we can sit permanently at your table and call you daddy and call Jesus big brother and dine with you in your presence forevermore. Father, I just pray that you would, your spirit would do your work through your word this morning. Some of us need to confess of the cracked cisterns we've been drinking from and put those down and stand under your waterfall. Some of us are hiding in the shame and sin and need to hear the gospel truths that we come to Jesus, not first having cleaned ourselves, but come to him to be cleaned. Wherever we're each at in this room, would, you're, would you do the work in our hearts that only you can do, that those living springs of water would come up from us. Lord, we come to you as we are, in, covered in the blood and righteousness of Jesus alone. And it's all God's people said.